Hey guys, I launched a new podcast with my best friend, Jesse. It's called Judgy and Juryish, and on the show, Jesse and I dish on our favorite reality TV shows and sidebar on funny stories from our past. And there are a lot of them because we were basically a couple of teenage a-holes. Judgy and Juryish is a great palate cleanser after listening to so much dark true crime content. You can find Judgy and Juryish wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to hit follow or subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Now, on with today's case. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. In what can only be described as the most egregious law enforcement scandal of the last century, the U.S. government helped to cultivate and empower one of the most brutal and notorious murderers of our time. A man who was simultaneously hailed as both a savior and a devil, a protector and an oppressor. James Whitey Bulger's story is complex and almost unbelievable. How did just another poor South Boston hoodlum rise to be the king of the Irish mob? and reign without punishment for 20 years as the bodies piled up around him? How did he manipulate and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, even after becoming a fugitive on the FBI's most wanted list, second only to Osama bin Laden? Whitey Bulger may have been a criminal genius, but his genius was facilitated by equally criminal men at every level of law enforcement. With their help, he went from mob boss to king rat, dying a violent and lonely death, reminiscent of the many brutal murders he so easily committed. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the complex and disturbing legacy of Irish mob boss James Whitey Bulger. This complicated case takes us to South Boston, Massachusetts, a densely populated working-class neighborhood. Deeply rooted in its Irish immigrant history, Southie, as it's known by locals, is a fiercely loyal community of mostly white, Irish Catholic families who feel a profound sense of security and pride in their heritage and their neighborhood. To be from Southie is to be part of a family. Throughout its history, the area was a tough neighborhood made up of modest homes and several large housing projects for lower-income families. If you were from Southie, you had to be able to stand up for yourself. Kids learned early on to fight in order to survive. The neighborhood even adopted the mascot of the University of Notre Dame as their own, the Fighting Irish, signified by a leprechaun poised in a fighting stance. A fitting tribute, to be sure. To this day, their Irish heritage is celebrated every year during the famous Southie St. Patrick's Day and Evacuation Day Parade, which celebrates not only Irish history, but also the evacuation of British troops from Boston on March 17, 1776. It's a rowdy holiday, and it's been described by residents as the Super Bowl of Southie. 
Today, even though Southie has undergone a massive waterfront renovation to bring in more diverse residents and businesses, that same loyalty and pride exists among those families in the neighborhood who have lived there for generations. James Joseph Whitey Bulger was born September 3, 1929, in Dorchester, Massachusetts. His father, James Joseph Bulger Sr., a second-generation Irish immigrant, was born in Newfoundland, Canada. Whitey's mother, Jane Veronica McCarthy, a first-generation Irish immigrant, was born in Boston. In 1940, the two moved their family into the newly built Old Harbor Housing Project in South Boston, shortly after Whitey was born. Whitey was the second of six children, three boys and three girls. His father was a longshoreman, whose ability to find consistent work was hampered by the fact that he lost an arm in an industrial accident. Some say that Whitey began a life of crime in order to support his family as the eldest son, since his father could not adequately provide for them himself. Whatever the reason, Whitey started breaking the rules at a very early age. At 10 years old, he ran away to join the Barnum & Bailey Circus, though it was short-lived. His first arrest came at age 13 when he was arrested for truancy. He then began tailgating, which involved stealing off of the back of delivery trucks in Southie. He was arrested at 14 for larceny. Around this time, local cops gave him the nickname Whitey due to his platinum blonde hair. He hated the nickname and threatened that anyone who wanted to live should call him Jimmy or Jim, though it seems the nickname Whitey stuck. He began to run with a gang known as the Shamrocks. Whitey built a reputation for being a vicious street fighter and a very capable thief. Whitey was also heavily into physical fitness. He enjoyed running and he lifted weights daily in his own makeshift gym, before gyms even became popular. It was important to Whitey that he always be perceived as a physical threat. He dropped out of high school and was eventually arrested for forgery, assault, and armed robbery and he was sent to a juvenile reformatory. Whitey was released in April of 1948 at the age of 18. Shortly after his release from juvenile reformatory, Whitey joined the U.S. Air Force, where he became an aircraft mechanic after completing basic training. Even the military could not change Whitey's behavior. He spent time in a military prison for several assaults, as well as going absent without leave. He also spent 30 days in a Montana City jail for a bar fight. In June of 1951, Whitey was arrested for rape after police found him in a hotel with a 15-year-old girl, though no formal charges were ever filed. Despite all of these arrests, Whitey was allowed to finish his military enlistment and was even given an honorable discharge in 1952. After returning to Boston, Whitey resumed his criminal career by committing a string of armed robberies. In May of 1955, he took part in an armed robbery of the Industrial National Bank in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. He and his two partners made off with $42,000, nearly $410,000 in today's currency. 
A few months later, he took part in a second bank robbery in Boston, and then a third in Indiana. After the Indiana robbery, Whitey found out that his partner had been arrested and had given him up to police. Not unlike the trip he would make 40 years later as he became one of the FBI's most wanted, Whitey and his girlfriend embarked on a cross-country road trip to avoid arrest. By early 1956, Whitey had returned home to Boston, but was soon arrested on a warrant for the robbery. He was taken into custody by FBI agent H. Paul Rico, who worked in the organized crime unit and would become one of the people responsible for making the Boston FBI office a den of corruption only a few years later and would have a direct connection to helping Whitey rise in the criminal underworld. Whitey confessed to the robberies and a judge sentenced him to 20 years in prison. Now 25 years old, Whitey was shipped to Atlanta Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. In 1959, after his alleged plan for escape from the facility was discovered, Whitey was transferred to Alcatraz, the infamous prison located on an island in the San Francisco Bay, where he served time alongside with well-known gangsters such as Mickey Cohen and Alvin Carpus. In 1962, he was transferred to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas, and finally, to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania in 1963. While in the Atlanta Penitentiary, Whitey was offered a reduced sentence for his participation in a program that he was told would help find a cure for schizophrenia. In reality, the program, codenamed MKUltra, was a covert project run by the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence. They were researching the effects of LSD and other drugs for mind control. Whitey and 18 other inmates agreed to volunteer for the program under the false pretense. Whitey received injections of LSD, commonly known as acid, once per day for almost 18 months. He described those experiences as absolutely nightmarish, with hallucinations that took him into the depths of insanity. Some would later pinpoint MKUltra as the genesis of the monster Whitey eventually became, noting that he only started killing people after those experiments. Whitey's brother, William Billy Bolger, was a rising political star in 1960, having just been elected to the Massachusetts State House of Representatives, and he used his position to advocate for his brother. Letters were written to the director of the Bureau of Prisons in Washington by politicians and other legitimate people in support of Whitey. On March 1, 1965, Whitey was paroled from prison after serving only nine years of his 20-year sentence. At 34 years old, he appeared no different than when he went in, five foot seven inches of lean muscle, weighing 178 pounds. On the inside, however, Whitey had changed dramatically. A few months after his release, he was already reconnecting with like-minded underworld associates. But unlike the small-time outlaw he had been prior to prison, Whitey was now a man on a mission to take over Boston. And as luck would have it, 
Whitey returned to Boston at the perfect time, just as the city was in the midst of one of the bloodiest gang wars in U.S. history. In the early 1960s, dead bodies turned up all across the city of Boston. Men were shot, stabbed, beaten to death, mutilated, and anything in between. Presumably because they were all mob hits, none of the deaths were ever seriously investigated by police. In February of 1967, Life magazine published a spread about the Boston gang wars, which included mugshots of 43 murder victims under the headline, The Thugs Squash Each Other One by One. Enter Whitey Bulger. Whitey aligned himself with a Southie gang known as the Killings, led by Donald Killing. Whitey was the muscle for the gang, who made their money through bookmaking and loan sharking. The Killings were at war with another gang in the area known as the Mullen Gang. As they battled for turf, Whitey quickly realized he would never have control of Southie as long as the Mullen Gang was around. He came up with a plan to kill the gang's leader, Polly McGonagall. Whitey pulled up next to Polly as the two drove on the streets of Southie and shot him straight in the face at close range. There was one problem, though. It wasn't Polly. It was his twin brother, Donald McGonagall. This sparked a vicious back-and-forth killing spree between the two gangs. In 1972, after Donald Killing had been murdered by the Mullen Gang, a mobster summit meeting was held at a bar in the South End, an attempt to work out a truce. Present at the meeting were the heads of several different Boston-area gangs, Howie Winter, leader of the Winter Hill Gang, Joe Russo, an Italian mafioso with ties to the Patriarca crime family, Pat Nee, who represented the Mullen Gang, and Whitey, who represented what was left of the Killing Gang. As a result of the meeting, the Killings and the Mullen Gang joined forces, with Howie Winter as the overall boss. Whitey went along with the agreement, but he wanted more. He eventually turned on what was left of the Killings and managed to remove them from any position of power, which left Whitey and the Mullen Gang in control of South Boston. Whitey enlisted the services of two enforcers known to be stone-cold killers, Steve the Rifleman Flemmy and John Matarano, took control of all bookmaking and loan-sharking operations. Whitey imposed rent on anyone looking to do business in Southie. Anyone who didn't pay cash paid with their lives. Over the next several years, Whitey systematically got rid of his competition by persuading his boss, Howie Winter, to sanction the murder of anyone who stepped out of line. One by one, Whitey killed them off until only Winter himself was left in the way. Winter would not be a problem for long, however, because in 1979, he was arrested, along with other prominent members of the Winter Hill Gang, on federal charges of fixing horse races. Curiously, Whitey and Flemmy, who were both involved in fixing the races, were left out of the indictments. With Winter out of the way, Whitey took over as leader of the Winter Hill Gang, officially becoming the boss of the Irish mob in South Boston. And in 1986, 
Whitey would again find himself in the right place at the right time, as the Patriarcha crime family's Boston underboss was indicted on federal racketeering charges. With the mafia's Boston operations in upheaval, Whitey was able to take over all organized crime in Boston. But just how did Whitey and Flemmy avoid indictment? How did Whitey happen to be in the right place at the right time to take over not one but two top spots in the underworld? How did he manage to stay out of prison even though everyone knew he was a murderer? Was Whitey Bulger just a criminal mastermind? Or did he have help from corrupt men who were sworn to protect the innocent? To find answers to these questions, we have to understand a little bit of history about the Boston office of the FBI. My family and work life are hectic, so I look for time savings wherever I can get it, which is why I use Stamps.com to ship packages. I never have to leave the house, and with my Stamps account, I save money too. Once you sign up at Stamps.com, you basically bring the U.S. Postal Service and UPS to your own computer. It's such a perfect fit for business owners, online sellers, or even larger warehouses where thousands of packages are shipped daily. And it's so simple. Just print postage for any letter or package right from your home printer and ship it anywhere. The 40% discount on post office rates and up to 62% discount I get on UPS rates really makes a difference in savings at the end of the month. Stop wasting time going to the post office and just go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MURDERISH. That's stamps.com, promo code MURDERISH. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. It's so easy to get bored with the usual at-home workout routine. If you can relate, I've got a great recommendation for you. The SoulCycle at-home bike transforms your home into a SoulCycle workout studio. The at-home bike comes with a 21-inch touchscreen with an amazing sound system to play SoulCycle's awesome playlist to keep you motivated. You'll never run out of classes, and you can put yourself in the front row of the class with your favorite instructors. With your membership, you get unlimited access to the Equinox Plus app where you can stream classes from well-known brands like Rumble, TB12, Pure Yoga, Equinox, and Solid Core. Here's the icing on the cake. You can get your SoulCycle at-home bike in one to three weeks. SoulCycle is known for its unique and motivating in-studio experience. I think you're going to love getting that same experience without even leaving your house. Get your SoulCycle at-home bike today by visiting mysoulcyclebike.com murderish and use promo code murderish to get a complimentary pair of at-home select cycling shoes with your purchase. That's mysoulcyclebike.com murderish, promo code murderish to get a complimentary pair of cycling shoes 
with the purchase of your Soul Cycle at home bike. MySoulCycleBike.com slash Murderish, promo code Murderish. By the time Whitey rose to power, Boston organized crime and the FBI already had a history of corruption. At that time, the primary focus of the FBI was the Italian Mafia. Unbeknownst to J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, the Mafia had firmly set up shop in the United States. Hoover had long denied the Mafia existed in the U.S., and he did not appreciate looking like a fool when it was discovered just how deeply rooted the Mafia actually was. In response, Hoover developed the Top Echelon Informant Program in 1961, which sought to develop sources within the top levels of organized crime who would provide quality information to the FBI. Agent H. Paul Rico, a Boston native, and the same agent who arrested Whitey in 1956 for bank robbery, had been a key figure in developing several major informants whom the FBI used in the top echelon program. These informants were criminals, thieves, extortionists, murderers, men who had no intention of stopping just because they were informants, and the FBI knew that. For the government, the rewards far outweighed the moral implications. The FBI needed to get their man, no matter what the price. One of Agent Rico's informants, Steve Flemmie, who would later become one of Whitey's right-hand men, helped to sign Joe the Animal Barboza to the informant program. Barboza, a known hitman, provided testimony against Raymond Patriarca, godfather of the Patriarca crime family, who ran all of the New England mafia. Patriarca and two of his soldiers were convicted of murder, becoming the highest-ranking mafia figures ever convicted up to that time. In return for his testimony, Barboza was protected from prosecution for the murder he committed. Agent Rico even helped his informants murder their rivals by letting them know when they wouldn't be watched, thereby giving them a window to kill anonymously. Rico also tipped off some of his informants, like Flemmy, when they were about to be indicted on charges, allowing them to flee before they could be arrested. It was a complex web of favors, lies, and murder, all in the name of taking down the mafia. Agent Rico and his partner, Agent Dennis Condon, were hailed as heroes for their work against the Mafia and were given salary increases and other incentives. Rico and Condon also used Barboza in a murder case involving innocent men, fabricating the evidence to go with Barboza's false testimony, which resulted in a guilty verdict. FBI memos uncovered decades later would show that FBI supervisors, deputy directors, and Hoover himself were kept up to date on every stage of this government conspiracy. The FBI's incestuous relationships with murderers like Barboza and Flemmy would become the roadmap for Whitey Bulger's rise to power. When Whitey had been released from prison in 1965, and made his way back to Boston for the final years of the gang wars, 
Agent Rico and Agent Condon took notice of him immediately. Whitey seemed far more intelligent and more disciplined than the average gangster. He kept physically fit, he didn't drink, smoke, or use drugs of any kind, and he was very well-spoken. He seemed educated, perhaps due to the fact that Whitey devoured books at an astonishing pace. While in prison, he read over 800 books from authors like Hemingway and Kipling. Rico and Condon believed that Whitey was the right type of person to see the value in forging a relationship with the government. In 1971, after Rico was transferred to the FBI field office in Miami, it was up to Condon to recruit Whitey as an informant. However, Condon did not have Rico's flair for developing informants, and Whitey wasn't interested. Waiting in the wings to replace Condon was a Southie native raised in the same housing project with Whitey, Agent John Connolly. He was perfect for the job. Connolly was from the streets, and he had the cockiness and confidence that came with growing up in the projects. Connolly was also close to the Bolger family and had joined the FBI in 1968, in part on the advice of Whitey's brother, Billy. In fact, Billy helped to expedite Connolly's confirmation as an agent by getting him a letter of recommendation from the same politician who had written letters to federal prison authorities on Whitey's behalf in 1965. In 1972, Connolly was assigned to the organized crime squad in New York City, but Rico and Condon knew that he wanted to be assigned to the Boston office. After all, Boston was the mecca of organized crime at the time, and it happened to be his hometown. They thought Connolly was the perfect fit to continue what they had started, but they needed to devise a plan to get him to Boston. Being a junior agent, Connolly had no say in where he was assigned. So, when Rico got a hot tip from his informant, Steve Flemmy, that a top 10 most wanted fugitive was in New York, right under their noses, the plan was set into motion. Connolly made it look like he just happened to spot this fugitive one day while out for a walk. He chased the fugitive down and placed him under arrest. For capturing such a high-ranking criminal, Connolly was given an assignment at the FBI office of his choosing. Of course, he chose Boston, and in 1973, he was assigned to Rico's old organized crime unit known as the C3 unit. Everything was going according to plan. With Flemmy already firmly established as one of the C3 informants, Connolly was ready to get Whitey on board. By the time Connolly moved to the Boston office, Flemmy had already formed a partnership with Whitey, and the two were involved as enforcers for the Winter Hill Gang, along with John Martirano. The Killings and the Mullen Gang had joined forces, and the gang wars were coming to an end. But remember, Whitey had his sights set on being the top dog in Boston, always looking for opportunities to make a move. Exactly how and why Whitey entered into a relationship with the FBI is up for debate. But some say that Flemmy was responsible. He was already an informant and was familiar with the advantages of a relationship with the FBI. 
because he held a firm place in the history of the criminal conspiracies that made the informant program what it was, he could get Whitey to understand the logic. Not to mention, he may have owed the FBI a favor or two. But according to Connolly, he approached Whitey as a fellow Southie Project kid, drawing on the fact that they were cut from the same cloth. They discussed an arrangement of mutual sharing of information that would benefit them both. Specifically, they discussed information Whitey could provide regarding the Angulo brothers, who were part of the New England Patriarcha crime family, based out of the north end of Boston. Whitey could control all of Boston if the Angulos were out of the way, and Connolly could eradicate the mafia, which would make him a hero with the FBI. It was a win-win situation. Whatever the case, records indicate that Whitey became a top echelon informant in 1975, though he would deny this accusation right up until the day he died. This relationship is the reason why Whitey and Flemmy avoided arrest during the horse racing indictments in 1979, which allowed Whitey to become the boss of the Winterhill Gang. Whitey provided information to Connolly that allowed him to indict the Angulo brothers and their mafia associates under the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization's RICO Act in 1986. Connolly became an FBI hero as the Patriarcha crime family fell apart, and Whitey easily took over all organized crime in their absence. But exactly who was handling who in this relationship? From 1979 through 1995, Whitey Bulger ruled Boston along with his right-hand men Steve Flemmy and Kevin Weeks. Weeks was Bulger's protege, whom he treated like a surrogate son and was grooming to be his successor. Former enforcer for the Winter Hill Gang, John Martirano also served as Whitey's hitman. They could often be found at a local Southie bar called Triple O's or at a convenience store that Whitey owned called Rotary Variety, which he used as a headquarters for his operations. Dozens of people were murdered by Whitey and his men during this time. They were shot, stabbed, strangled, left to rot in the trunks of cars, or dumped in secret burial grounds. Bodies were dismembered and burned, teeth ripped out with pliers, all in the name of making identification more difficult. One could easily make the argument that Agent Connolly acted as a member of Whitey's crew as well, as he ensured that Whitey was virtually ignored by the FBI as well as state and local law enforcement agencies. Whitey gave Connolly bits of information on his various rivals throughout the years, but nothing that rose to the level of the information on the Patriarcha crime family. In truth, Whitey had been paying Connolly for information on his enemies from the start of their relationship, totaling $250,000 in cash over a 10-year period. Connolly also input disinformation into intelligence files at Whitey's direction, which helped to cover up all aspects of his operations, from murder to arms trafficking. Connolly even kept Whitey's informant file active by padding it with information that actually came from other informants. 
He would steal reports from other files and rewrite them, inserting Whitey's name. As long as Whitey had an active file, Connolly could keep meeting with him without drawing suspicion and keep getting paid. Even Connolly's supervisor, Agent John Morris, assisted in protecting Whitey beginning in the late 1970s. He received cash payments totaling $7,000 as well as other gifts. It had been Morris who persuaded U.S. Federal Prosecutor Jeremiah O'Sullivan to keep Whitey and Flemmy out of the horse racing indictments. It truly was a win-win situation. Whitey avoided prosecution, and Connolly bought expensive jewelry, clothing, and a house on the Cape. Whitey Bulger developed two starkly different reputations during his reign over Boston. He was no doubt an absolutely vicious and brutal killer. That was clear. His violence was so well known that just one look from the man could strike terror into most people. But there were also people who loved and adored him. Those people hailed Whitey as a neighborhood Robin Hood of sorts, one who did unspeakable things to men who deserved it. They saw him as a killer with integrity, keeping Southie safe from evil. Remember, to be from Southie is to be a family. And as such, it was not uncommon for Whitey to deliver turkeys to families on Thanksgiving or hand out presents to neighborhood kids at Christmas. He was one man but with two faces, a devil and a savior. Whitey was a very smart businessman, and he had his hands in everything. He had cornered the market on vending machines all over Boston. He made millions from charging rent on anyone doing business in his city. If you wanted to be a loan shark, a bookie, or deal drugs, you had to give Whitey his cut and follow his rules. If not, the barrel of a gun would be the last thing you saw, that is, if you even saw it coming. Whitey is often falsely credited with keeping drugs out of Southie. But in reality, he only put limits on what kind of drugs could be sold and who could sell them. He smuggled marijuana and cocaine through Boston Harbor, as well as weapons and explosives that he shipped to Ireland in support of the Irish Republican Army, or IRA. Whitey had even branched out to operating in Miami, where he was involved in illegal gambling operations on a popular sport called Halai. Whitey quite literally had an empire. Not a bad return for giving a little bit of information and a lot of money to his FBI protectors. By 1994, every level of law enforcement had tried and failed to prosecute Whitey. It became clear that the FBI was compromised and could not be trusted. A joint task force, led by new U.S. Attorney Fred Wyshack and made up of the Drug Enforcement Agency, the Boston Police, and the Massachusetts State Police, launched their own investigation into Whitey's operations. Wyshack, believing there was a leak in the FBI, made sure to keep them out of the loop. After several bookies agreed to testify against Whitey, the task force built a strong case against the Winter Hill Gang under the RICO Act. In December of 1994, the indictments were ready to be handed down. Agent Connolly got wind of the impending arrests 
and informed Whitey and Flemmy. Flemmy chose to stay in Boston and was arrested quickly. Whitey chose to run, leaving Boston on December 23, 1994. According to Kevin Weeks, who took over as head of the Winter Hill Gang after Whitey fled, Whitey had been prepping for this moment for years. He had traveled the world, building up another life. He had ID cards, credit cards, and bank accounts set up and ready to use. Whitey had also prepared safe deposit boxes full of cash, jewelry, and passports in locations all across North America and Europe. Initially, Whitey fled with his common-law wife, Teresa Stanley. But after about a month, Stanley decided she wanted to return to her children. Whitey drove her back to Boston and exchanged her for his other girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, without even being detected. Whitey and Gregg then spent the next 16 years on the run together. After the first few years of his disappearance, no one believed Whitey would ever be found, which left his crew to take the punishment for all of his crimes. That meant it was every man for himself, and the race to making the best plea deals began. It's so hard to stay off of the Jenny Kane website because their pieces are just so cute and versatile. I've been wearing my Jenny Kane shearling slide sandals with everything. I like them best with my vintage straight leg mom jeans paired with a band t-shirt or knit sweater, but I really like them when they don't end up in my teenager's closet. Jenny Kane has a California cool vibe that is just so timeless. Their cashmere sweaters are adorable and everything is very well made. Jenny Kane's looks never go out of style and they pair with just about anything. Layer your Jenny Kane pieces or mix and match them they are perfect for weekends, the office, or any occasion, really. Trust me, one trip to Jenny Kane's website, and you're going to make it your go-to place to find pieces that elevate your style and make you feel like a million bucks. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com and get 15% off your first purchase when you use code MURDERISH at checkout. That's J-E-N-N-I. K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code MURDERISH. The first to be arrested was Steve Flemmy in 1995 outside of a Boston restaurant. He fought the charges for years, mistakenly believing that he would be protected from prosecution because he was an FBI informant. However, by 2000, Kevin Weeks and John Martirano had already made plea deals and Flemmy knew he could face the death penalty with the information they had on him. Flemmy decided to plead guilty to 10 counts of murder and agreed to testify in exchange for a life sentence without parole. Hitman John Martirano was arrested in 1995 while hiding out in Florida. He was given an absurd plea deal in 1997, confessing to 20 murders for a reduced sentence of only 14 years and $20,000 to be paid upon his release. Supervising FBI agent John Morris was arrested in 1998 and was given total immunity for his testimony against Agent Connolly. 
Kevin Weeks was arrested in 1999, and although he was now aware of Whitey's informant status, he stuck to the Southie code of silence and kept his mouth shut. That is, until he was reminded by a fellow gangster while in prison that you can't rat on a rat. Weeks eventually led authorities to six bodies buried in various locations around Boston and agreed to testify against Whitey, Flemmy, and Agent Connolly. In return, Weeks served only five years in prison. The government wanted Whitey so badly that they willingly made these incomprehensible deals with depraved men who were little more than executioners and no less guilty than Whitey himself. The FBI created the Bolger Fugitive Task Force and offered a $2 million reward for information leading to his capture. Whitey was featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted 16 times and was number two on the FBI Top 10 Most Wanted list behind Osama bin Laden. Whitey and Catherine Gregg were reportedly seen in places all over the world between 1995 and 2011, but nothing ever panned out. It wasn't until the FBI switched their focus in 2011 and began a media campaign centered on Gregg that they got their big break. Not long after airing several PSAs during popular daytime TV shows, a woman called the FBI and said she recognized Whitey and Greg as Charlie and Carol Gasco, a couple she befriended while living in Santa Monica, California, at the Princess Eugenia Apartments. The FBI quickly sent agents to the apartments located at 1012 3rd Street. The apartment manager was shocked, but confirmed that a photo of Whitey and Greg matched the couple he knew as Charlie and Carol Gasco in apartment 303. On June 22, 2011, as a ruse to get the fugitives out in the open, the apartment manager called Greg and told her that their storage locker in the garage area had been broken into. It was Whitey who stepped out of the apartment dressed in a clean pair of slacks and his usual white-brimmed hat, and took the elevator down to the garage. As he stepped off the elevator, agents arrested him without incident. Whitey later said that they would not have caught him if he had been on his game. Greg was also taken into custody a short time later. Agents found more than 800000 in cash hidden in the walls of their apartment as well as 30 firearms and numerous fake IDs. One of Whitey's neighbors in the apartment complex, Annalise Lentz, was absolutely shocked to learn that the man she and her two children knew as Grandpa Charlie was a wanted man. Upon hearing that Grandpa Charlie was in fact Whitey Bolger, America's most wanted murderer, her first thought was that there had to be a mistake. The man she knew a man she considered to be her only friend in the complex, was not a killer. Grandpa Charlie was protective over her and her kids, often checking on them to make sure they were okay. Once, he had given Annalise a flashlight during a blackout, and when she tried to return it, he refused to take it. Grandpa Charlie was always there for her. He babysat her kids, 
bought them books and other gifts at Christmas, thought of them any time he went out shopping, bringing back fresh fruit from farmer's markets and other surprises. They adored him, and Annalise trusted him completely. It took a lot of convincing to even begin to change her mind. To her, Whitey was a protector, a friend, her family. And in some ways, no matter what the truth was, he was always going to be Grandpa Charlie. Eventually, Whitey was brought back to Boston and arraigned on July 6, 2011. He pleaded not guilty to 48 charges, including 19 counts of murder. Whitey's trial began on June 12, 2013, in South Boston's John Joseph Moakley United States Courthouse with Judge Denise J. Casper presiding. The former mob boss was charged with 33 counts of racketeering and firearms possession, which included 19 counts of murder. The trial lasted for two months and included testimony from 72 witnesses. The prosecution lawyers were former U.S. Federal Attorney Fred Wyshack, Brian Kelly, and Zachary Hafer. In his opening statement, Prosecutor Kelly explained to the jury how Whitey was an informant and also bribed those in the FBI and law enforcement so he could escape prosecution. Kelly focused mainly on the murder charges, promising shocking testimony from Whitey's associates, some of whom had taken part in the murders. He read aloud the names of each of the 19 victims, one by one, as an accompanying photo was shown to the jury. Based on the jury's solemn reactions, this was a very effective tactic. Whitey was represented by defense attorneys J.W. Carney and Hank Brennan. In his opening statement, defense attorney Carney began by explaining how challenging it had been to dig through the years of criminal history surrounding the case and how dedicated he and his team were to presenting the truth. He took his time laying out the FBI's history of corruption, which served as the blueprint for their handling of Whitey. Carney admitted that Whitey had committed most of the crimes charged in the indictment, but alleged that former U.S. Attorney Jeremiah O'Sullivan had given Whitey immunity from all crime, including murder, in exchange for protection back in the late 1970s. Then, Carney dropped a bombshell, saying that Whitey would take the stand to testify to this agreement with the now-deceased federal prosecutor. Carney went on to allege that his client was never an FBI informant at all, that Agent Connolly created a fake informant file full of information which was essentially useless. Carney said that he did that in order to cover up the fact that he was meeting with Whitey and taking bribes. The defense claimed that Connolly never followed FBI protocols for setting up a legitimate informant when it came to Whitey. There were no contracts signed by Whitey and no fingerprints or photos taken of him, all of which should have been in his file. It was unclear to many in the courtroom the reasons why the defense would spend so much time talking about whether Whitey was an informant or not, as this had no bearing on his guilt or innocence. Many people speculate that Whitey just wanted to have it on record 
that he was not a rat. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses over the course of seven weeks. However, their three main witnesses were Steve Flemmy, John Maritano, and Kevin Weeks, Whitey's trusted partners and hitmen. They testified to Whitey's various criminal activities, but their most damning testimony was related to the murder charges. Each man testified to numerous murders that they either helped Whitey commit, murders they committed under orders from Whitey, or murders Whitey committed himself, which they were then tasked to clean up or bury the bodies. These murders included the killing of two women, as well as two out-of-state murders, one in Oklahoma and one in Florida. The stories these men recounted were gruesome and unfathomable. Evidence presented included the recovery of six bodies in 2000 after Kevin Weeks led investigators to their locations, as well as the forensic anthropology reports on what was left of the remains. During cross-examination of Weeks by the defense, he lamented that he and Whitey killed people for being rats, all while the biggest rat was right next to him the whole time. This prompted Whitey to mumble during trial, You suck. Weeks responded by yelling, Fuck you. And Whitey shouted back, Fuck you too. Weeks made a motion to move from the witness stand towards Whitey, prompting Judge Casper to step in. Clearly, Weeks still harbored feelings of resentment toward the man he had loved and trusted. The prosecution rested their case on Friday, July 26th. The defense initially submitted a list of 80 names on their witness list, but the prosecution contested most of them on the grounds that they had nothing to do with the trial. The defense's strategy was to force their assertion that Whitey was never an informant and the FBI was corrupt. The list was whittled down to 50 defense witnesses and finally down to just 12 names. Judge Casper was not interested in any testimony that was not related to the current charges against Whitey. This effectively derailed the defense's entire case. They were not permitted to use any line of questioning that pointed toward the government misconduct. Casper considered any government corruption a separate matter, irrelevant in regard to Whitey's guilt or innocence on the current charges. Most of the witnesses the defense were allowed to call did not offer any compelling testimony. With the exception of John Martirano, he was recalled to the stand in order to place blame for the murder of one of the two women solely on Steve Flemmy instead of Whitey. It was unclear if they were successful. Whitey, to the disappointment of his defense team and anyone following the trial, decided not to take the stand. While explaining his decision to Judge Casper, he called the trial a sham and complained that he had not gotten a fair trial because he wasn't allowed to talk about his immunity deal with Jeremiah O'Sullivan. The defense then rested on August 2, 2013. The jury of eight men and four women began deliberations four days later. Just over five days later, on August 12, 2013, the jury convicted Whitey Bulger on 31 out of 32 counts of the indictment. 
including responsibility in the murders of the following 11 people. Polly McConagall, leader of the Mullen Gang, murdered in 1974. He was lured to a meeting inside Whitey's car, where Whitey shot him in the face. Jurors were shown photos of the human remains recovered from a shallow grave, including a decomposed finger with a clatter ring. Ironically, the clatter ring is a traditional Irish ring representing love, loyalty, and friendship. Edward Connors, murdered in 1975, was an associate of the Winter Hill Gang and a bar owner. He was gunned down in a phone booth after he agreed to turn state's evidence against the gang. Whitey and Steve Flemmy used a shotgun and automatic rifle to riddle the phone booth with bullets, nearly cutting Connors in half. Thomas King, a prominent member of the Mullen Gang, was murdered in 1975. John Martirano shot him in the back of the head on Whitey's order. Richard Castucci, a nightclub owner and bookie, was murdered in 1976 by John Martirano. Martirano testified that he shot Castucci in the head at close range as he was sitting at a kitchen table with Whitey. Roger Wheeler, a wealthy Oklahoma businessman who owned World High Lie, was murdered in 1981 outside of his country club in Tulsa. He had suspected Whitey of skimming from the business and refused to sell it to him. On Whitey's order, Martirano shot Wheeler in the eye at close range. Brian Holloran and Michael Donahue were murdered in 1982, gunned down in Donahue's bar by Whitey. Holloran had been informing the FBI about the Wheeler murder, but Donahue, unfortunately, was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. John Callahan was murdered in 1982 in Miami. Callahan was the president of World Hailai, and Whitey feared he would snitch about Wheeler's death. Martirano shot him in the head and then stuffed him in the trunk of his own car at the Miami airport parking lot. Arthur Bucky Barrett, a jewel thief and bank robber, was murdered by Whitey in 1983. Barrett was taken to a vacant house owned by the brother of a Winter Hill gang member where he was chained to a chair until he told Whitey where he had hidden a large sum of cash. Whitey then shot him in the back of the head. Weeks and Flemmy were ordered to bury the body in the dirt floor of the basement. Flemmy removed Barrett's teeth with a pair of pliers so the body could not be identified. Weeks would later nickname the house the Haunty because of the gruesomeness of the murders that took place there. John McIntyre was a fisherman, murdered in 1984. He had been informing to the government about weapons smuggled to the IRA. He was taken to the Haunty, chained up and interrogated by Whitey. Flemmy held McIntyre while Whitey strangled him with a rope. When the rope didn't work, Whitey shot him in the head. He was buried in the basement. Deborah Hussey was murdered in 1985. She was the 26-year-old daughter of Steve Fleming's longtime live-in girlfriend. Whitey strangled her to death inside the haunty because she was going to tell police about the sexual relationship she had with Fleming when she was a teenager. Fleming removed her teeth with a pair of pliers 
and she was buried in the basement, all while Whitey took a nap upstairs. Eleven lives brutally and swiftly ended without a second thought, their story swept under the rug by corrupt law enforcement who allowed their murderers to go without punishment for decades. But what about the eight other victims in the indictment? During deliberations, the jurors had agreed that because the major witnesses in this case were murderers themselves, they could not be trusted. The jury decided they could not vote guilty on any charge that did not have a corroborating witness. As such, much to the dismay of the victims' families, the jury found seven of the remaining murder charges to be not proved. And in the case of the remaining victim, Deborah Davis, the jury could not make a finding either way. On November 14, 2013, Judge Casper sentenced Whitey Bulger to two terms of life in prison plus five years. He was ordered to forfeit $25.2 million and pay $19.5 million in restitution. Judge Casper called Whitey evil, depraved, and monstrous. When asked if he had anything to say, Whitey simply said no. On October 29, 2018, Whitey was transferred to the U.S. Penitentiary Hazleton in West Virginia, a facility known to be understaffed and experiencing frequent homicides at the time. Now 89 years old, Whitey's health was declining and he was confined to a wheelchair. Rather than being kept segregated from the other inmates and close to a medical ward like he had been for years prior, for unknown reasons, Whitey's medical status was downgraded and he was put into general population. Less than 11 hours later, Whitey was found dead in his cell, beaten to death by multiple inmates who used a padlock inside of a sock and a shiv, leaving Whitey unrecognizable by the time it was over. His eyes were nearly gouged out and his tongue practically cut off. This type of mutilation was commonly used by the mafia as retaliation for being a snitch. As it turned out, a Massachusetts-based mafia hitman named Freddy G.S., was serving a life sentence for murder in the same facility and became the prime suspect in Whitey's murder. As of today, no charges have been filed against Gias. This event begs the question, was it just a coincidence that Whitey was transferred to a facility known to be understaffed, placed in general population within reach of mafia hitmen, and then found dead in a matter of hours after his arrival? Or was it just all part of yet another government conspiracy? In 1999, Agent Connolly was indicted on charges for alerting Whitey and Flemmy to investigators, falsifying FBI reports, and racketeering. He was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison in 2002. In 2008, he was also convicted of second-degree murder in Florida and sentenced to another 40 years. He was compassionately released on February 17, 2021, due to a terminal illness. Connolly's mentor, Agent H. Paul Rico, was indicted for murder in 2003 in Florida and Oklahoma. 
He died in a hospital while still under indictment in 2004. With the arrests of both of these men, who seemed to be just as corrupt and evil as the man they helped create, many believe the era of government corruption was finally over. However, after Whitey's gruesome murder, the Bolger family believed his death to be a continuation of deeply rooted government corruption, and as such, they filed a lawsuit in 2020. The lawsuit alleged that 30 Federal Bureau of Prison employees deliberately sent Whitey to his death. The lawsuit is still going on today. Conspiracy or not, many people believe that Whitey got exactly what he deserved. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to my new podcast, Judgy and Juryish. Also, I will be at CrimeCon in Austin, Texas this year, and I would love to see you guys there. Use promo code MURDERISH20 to get 10% off a standard badge. Go to CrimeCon.com to get info about the event. It's so much fun. Use my promo code MURDERISH20 for 10% off. Stick around after the closing music to hear a promo for LA Not So Confidential, a podcast I know you will enjoy. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you so much to Jessica A., Karen B., Claudia S., Jesse K., Russian K., and Yasmin BK for becoming Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you guys so much. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Gina Mazzolini. Stick around after the closing music and podcast promo to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. I'm here to tell you about LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast brought to you by me, Dr. Shiloh. And this guy. Hi, I'm her bestie and co-host, Dr. Scott. She was a cop and I was a Hollywood casting director. Now we're both forensic psychologists working in Los Angeles. We met while doing our internships working with sex offenders. I know, right? 
Twice a month, we bring you a classic or contemporary true crime story while applying real psychological concepts and dishing about entertainment's representations of those crimes. Subscribe now to L.A. Not So Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. True crime, psychology, and snark. Trust us. We're doctors. Sources for this episode include an Associated Press article by the Desert News Online dated June 23, 2011, a CNN online article dated August 12, 2013, a Kindle edition HarperCollins book dated 2015 titled Where the Bodies Were Buried by T.J. English, a Kindle edition book by the World Impact Press dated 2015 titled Grandpa Charlie, The Untold Story of Whitey Bulger by Douglas Layton. A Ballantine 1999 title, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie by Michael Patrick McDonald. A HarperCollins book dated 2006 titled Brutal, The Untold Story of My Life Inside Whitey Bulger's Irish Mob by Phyllis Carraz and Kevin Weeks. A Wikipedia article dated March 6, 2021 on Whitey Bulger.